Well, good morning everyone on this side of the room. <laughs> it's uh, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship. And this might be new for all of us, really. This is not always a common thing that you see beginning the service with a call to worship. But for me, it reminds us why we're here. <laughs> that we're here to worship God. That I'm not that entertaining. <laughs> I'm not going to entertain you. But we've come to worship God. Uh, so let's remember that as we say these words together. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me with the non-bold. From Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful. Remain standing and turn to him. 253 will sing, Come Thou Found.
nice everybody's here in the center. <laughs> in Exodus 33, we have Moses, the great intercessor, the, the type of Jesus, if you will, back in the Old Testament, who's interceding on behalf of, of uh, God's people. For the second time, the second round of 40 days of fasting up on the mountain, uh, Moses goes up and, and asks, asks God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, if you spend any time in Romans at all, you may have recognized this one part here. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In Romans 9, I think it's 15, he's talking about... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is just a glimpse of God's sovereignty that is profound in the scripture. And what you'll also find is that the, the interconnection of the Old Testament and the New Testament is so obvious here. The synergistic relationship, if you will, of how the Old Testament, the New Testament is, is called the New Testament but there's, there's nothing new in it. It's being reset. It's being said again in a, in a more profound way through Christ. But uh, when you get a chance, look this over again and then go to Romans 9, 9.15 I think it is, and you'll see, uh, you'll see the exact same wording there. That's an exact quote from, from Exodus. If you would all pray with me in this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, you are infinite, eternal, unchanging, and everywhere present. You alone dwell in unapproachable life, and yet, in our sin, we have broken your holy law. We cannot see you and live, but because of the person and work of Christ, we have received grace upon grace. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, for the sake of Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, set us apart to be your holy people. Amen. If you please remain standing and turn to hymn number 211, we will sing Amazing Grace.
Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival, festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we don't really understand the, the awesome awe and fear that we should have when we come to you. We thank you, Lord, that as holy as you are, as righteous as you are, and as just as you are, you have given us your Son that we could approach you without fear, knowing that your love for us is, is, is immeasurable. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Father, we want to thank you for your hand on uh, Eloise this past weekend. Thank you for bringing her back to health, Lord. We thank you for these scary times, Lord, that we we're forced to trust in you, Lord. And boy, if there's nothing, uh, there's no situation that's like having your child who can't communicate with you and has such a, a dire need that we rest in you, Lord. We thank you for that, that, that she's come back around, Lord. Father, I thank you for your hand over Hannah on her way home the other night that... Uh, a drunk and druggy was could have could have hit her instead of the car in front of her. We just thank you for the provision that you've you've provided, Lord, of the protection that you've given us, sometimes without us even being aware that that you've been there and that you've been before us. But you do go before us, and you come up behind us and you protect us. And I thank you, Lord, for that. Father, be with us this morning as you uh, are in your word as we as Kendall brings your your word before us. May it ring true in our heart. May it prick our hearts, Lord, that that we would be sensitized to what your Spirit would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name. So, in the uh, our Baptist Catechism, you now whenever I first uh, was introduced to confessional reform theology I saw catechism and I'm thinking what in the world is catechism doing in a Baptist church I mean I think of catechism I automatically think of Catholicism don't you the, the Catholic 
Catholicism, uh, or the Catholic Catechism. The Catechism is just the teachings. It's a, it's a question and answering. It's, it's breaking down in a systematic way, if you will, a questions that, that we at one time or another have, have thought of, or maybe not have thought of yet, but will eventually. And it, and it takes us to the Word. It takes us to the Word. So catechisms and our confessions are not equal to the Word, but they point to the Word. They just, they just break it down into edible bites, if you will, so that we can, we can better take them. So question number two of the Baptist Catechism is, what is man's chief end? The answer there is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's as simple as that. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You guys can be seated. Am I the only one that's a little warm in here? Maybe Andrew can turn it down a notch. Is it? Is anybody else warm? <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Let's crank it. We'll pretend like it's the Drew's house. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. We will be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. And today we'll be... Finishing the prologue, finally, maybe some of you are ready to be out of these 18 verses. Uh, they've, been, they've been a joy to walk through with you all, and hopefully you've seen the depths of, of God's Word and something that we could read in a couple minutes, you know, in our, in our quiet time or in our devotions, the depth that's in there, and hopefully we'll, we'll see that again today. So the last couple weeks we've, we've looked at this idea of the Incarnation. We looked specifically at verse 14, and we saw that the Word became flesh. We spent two weeks looking at those five words, that the Word became flesh. That this idea of the incarnation, many people would say, is the most important act that God ever did in history, is the incarnation, the suffering, and the glory of Christ. Because at the heart of it, it's... It's the foundation of what we believe as Christians. If there's no Christ, if there's no incarnation, then there's no Christianity. There's no belief. What are we doing here if there's no incarnate Son of God? So we talked about that, why it was important that Christ had to take on flesh, take on human nature that was like ours, except without sin. And then we also talked about the work that He came to accomplish, that He was sent by the Father with a purpose. It wasn't just... For the fun of it, it was to accomplish redemption for God's people. And so, today, as John sort of wraps up this prologue, the introduction to his whole gospel, the next 21 chapters, he's going to talk about some of the implications of what we looked at in verse 14. And today we're going to see that Christ, again, is the central point of all of human history. Not just the Incarnation, but Him dwelling with His people. And that word dwelling we're going to talk about a little bit more today. What does it mean that the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we're going to see that not only is Christ the dwelling place of God among his people, but he's the final revelation of God to his people. That God spoke to his people in the Old Testament, but now, through his Son, Christ has spoken. He's the final word of God to his people. So I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. If you want to follow along with me, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage. This is the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbly, Lord, um, seeking your face, seeking your presence, seeking the power of your spirit this morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, for just a couple minutes we realize how inadequate we are, how fallen we are, how, how often we fall short of what you've held out for us. And so this morning we ask for supernatural help, that by the power of your spirit this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that the scales would fall off our eyes and we would see the glory of Christ that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. We need your help. <laughs> we need your help this morning, Lord. Help us open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning in the Gospel of John, and may we be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. There are two types of people in the world. There are those that like to camp and those that do not like to camp. Do we have any non-campers in the group? Okay, we got to go. <laughs> we got several. Okay. There are those that like to camp. There are those that do not like to camp. And within that group of those that do like to camp, there's some secret people that secretly don't like to camp. We call those glampers. <laughs> Have you ever heard this term? It's glamour camping. It's glamping. It's those that masquerade as campers, but they drive around in a giant semi with air conditioning, and they don't, they don't really like to camp. Okay, so maybe, maybe you know some of these people, maybe you are. that's great. So I, we lived in Utah for a couple of years, and there was both of these types of people. There was RV people that would pull up, you know, to the campsite and watch their TV, play their video games, and they would do their glamping. And then there were the real campers.
numbers, right? I mean, the people that pack eight pounds in their bag and will go for a week trip to the mountains and, you know, never come back because they loved it. And so there's campers and there's non-campers. And what you learn really quickly is that those that RV campers, the glampers, they're okay with nature being at a distance, right? <laughs> that's, that's the way they like it. They don't like the bugs. They don't like the heat. They don't want to be in it. But if you want to get up close to nature, if you want to be in nature, if you want to be close, you have to go out. You have to pitch your tent in the wilderness, right? You have to go out. You have to be there. And I say that because if we look at the story of Scripture, what is Scripture about? There's a lot of different answers to that questions. We've tried to answer some of those questions in the last couple of weeks. But one way we can talk about it is God seeking to dwell with his people. That he wants communion with them. He wants to be close. He doesn't want to be far away. He wants to be close with the people that he's made in his own image. And we see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right? That God creates man. He makes Adam. He makes Eve. And he's in full communion with him. There's nothing separating them. There's no sin. There's no nothing. They are one. They are in communion with God. God is seeking to dwell with his people. But we know that that is not the state that we're in, right? That the fall happened. That Adam and Eve sinned. That they went against God's law. They broke his commandments. And God exiled them from the garden. They lost that communion with God. They were exiled from the garden. God puts a giant angel with a flaming sword at the entrance saying, keep out. So there's this problem that Adam and Eve, you know, there's this communion that was and sin breaks that. Sin keeps God from communing with his people. That my, my kids have this little book and there's this phrase that's repeated throughout. It's kind of tracking some of this. And the phrase that it repeats, it says, talking about the garden and the tabernacle and the temple, these places where God would dwell with his people. But it keeps saying, because of their sin, they couldn't go in. Because of their sin, they couldn't go in. And so the whole scripture is this story of God seeking to dwell with his people that are sinners. And so we see this in the tabernacle with Moses. We see this in the temple with Solomon. And this is really a theme that runs throughout the whole scripture is how is God going to dwell with his sinful people. And so when we come to John chapter 1, verse 14, it's very interesting the words that John uses. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. I don't know if anybody has a different translation. Some translations translate it, translate it more literally, and that word dwelt there can be translated pitched his tent. It can be translated tabernacle among us, that the word became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. And so John here is connecting these two things, the incarnation, the word of God taking on flesh, and this idea of tabernacling, of pitching his tent. He's sort of connecting these two things. So we have to ask this question, what is a tabernacle? What is a temple? What is this Old Testament language that we're talking about here. Simply put, a tabernacle or a temple is a special dwelling place of God among men, where God dwells with his people. 
where God, in a special way, dwells amongst his people. And I say special way because what's one of the things that we confessed this morning in our um, prayer of confession? We said that God is everywhere present. That's called omnipresent is a fancy word for that. That means that God is everywhere present. He's not bound by time or space. You can't put him in a box, right? He is everywhere present. One of my kids' catechism questions is, where is God? And the answer is, everywhere, <laughs> right? He's everywhere. So how can you say, Kendall, that God is especially present in this tabernacle or temple? That seems contradictory. But we see throughout Scripture that God dwells in a special way in certain places. For instance, Psalm 24 begins with this. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then it starts talking about God's special dwelling place being on the holy mountain, the holy hill. We kind of see this in the Garden of Eden too, right? God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything. But he plants a garden and an Eden. And he puts man in the garden. So there's this place where God is dwelling specially amongst his people. And we see this continue throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. What do we see? Sin happens, we've talked about that, and God desires to dwell amongst his people. He's redeemed them out of Egypt, he leads them through the Red Sea, and what's one of the first things he tells Moses to do? Build this tabernacle. Build the tabernacle. We read about this in Exodus 29. Listen to the language that Moses writes in the book of Exodus about this. He's speaking about the temple. This is God speaking. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So we see this language of glory and dwelling. Glory and dwelling. This is the tabernacle. This is, it was basically a portable temple that could be moved around. This was the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And as we go on in the scriptures, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has just built the temple, the physical temple, this giant structure covered in gold. And he prays a prayer of dedication. And then he says this, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worship and give thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. All that to say that throughout Scripture, God is seeking to dwell with his people. This idea of glory should make us think of God's presence, where he's especially present. It's not saying God's not everywhere present, but in a special way, he chose to dwell in the tabernacle. His glory filled the tabernacle, and he dwelt there amongst his people. Same thing with the temple. But what happened after this point is that the people started worshiping the temple 
instead of the God of the temple. They started worshiping the structure and not the one who dwelt in the structure. Does that make any sense? And so the people, in their sin, started trusting in this created thing instead of the creator. And eventually their sin would lead them into exile. And the prophet Ezekiel would come to say that the glory of God would leave the temple because of their sin. Because they had broken God's law, they had broken covenant, very similar to Adam and Eve, God would leave the temple. His glory would depart. Maybe you've heard this word, Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. So the people had come to trust in the temple rather than the one who dwelt in the temple. And so because of their sin, the people of Israel are exiled into Babylon. The glory of God departs. And eventually, the temple is destroyed. The temple is flattened. And even though there's another one that's eventually built, the prophets in the Old Testament look forward to this new temple that's going to be built. This new dwelling place of God among his people. And the prophet Zechariah says this explicitly. We said that we had this in our call to worship a couple weeks ago. In chapter 2, the prophet Zechariah looks forward to this day when God will dwell again with his people. He says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And he says eventually somewhere else that I will be the glory in your midst. So there's this future day coming where God will again dwell with his people, where the glory of the Lord will be with his people. And so when we come to John chapter 1, verse 14, again, it would be shocking to the people that heard it. And it should be shocking to us if we're picking up all this history, that when John says that the word of God took on flesh and a tabernacle dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. These ideas of glory and dwelling are not just random words that John chose to use here. He's connecting these things. What John is saying is that Christ is now, in his incarnation, is the special dwelling place of God among his people. That he has come as the true temple, the true tabernacle, in which God's glory dwells. And all these things, all these other pictures in the Old Testament pointed to this. That what Christ came and did in his incarnation was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had talked about here. And we pick up on this more explicitly, if you want to turn with me, in John chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes there, all these people are exchanging money, and he cleanses the temple. He gets righteously angered because these people are turning the Lord's house into a den of a house of trade. And the, the Pharisees come up to him and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John says this, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. That this one, this incarnate Christ taking on flesh, 
As we move through John's Gospel, we're going to see that Christ is the temple. <laughs> that he's the true and better temple, the place where God's presence dwells with his people. That this language of glory and dwelling is all pointing to this. This is all temple language, if you will. And that God himself is dwelling amongst his people. Christ is nothing less than God. We've made that point. But we see that as we go through verses 14 through 18. We see that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. That this is the glory of the only Son from the Father. And then John goes on to say, the, John the Baptist says that he ranks before me. That he is pre this is the pre, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The pre-existence of the word. That he wasn't created, he didn't come into existence. That this is God in flesh. And not only that, not only is Christ the dwelling place of God among men, but we see that he's the final revelation of God to his people. That he's the final revelation of God to his people. That in verse 17, we, see, we read these words. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. This should remind us of other words in the book of Hebrews. What's it say there? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? So we have the law and we have the gospel. We have the law given through Moses, but we have grace and truth through Christ. This is the finality and the supremacy of Christ's revelation. That in Christ, we have the final revelation of God to his people. We have the gospel. And I say that because it's important to make a distinction here. Because some people will say that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they'll say that God looked really angry. And I don't like that God. And so they conclude that it must be a different God in the Old Testament. And that this God in the New Testament is Jesus and he's a little bit happier and he's less angry. Well, we just saw that Christ did get angry, right? That's one example of many that there is not two gods. We don't believe in two gods. There is one God that's revealed himself in the Old and the New Testament. And we believe that God spoke, that he revealed himself in the Old Testament. And one of the biggest ways, the most prominent ways that he did this was through the giving of the law. We read about that this morning. That Moses went up on the mountain in the cloud of the glory and he was given the law at Mount Sinai. And that this giving of the law was a glorious thing. There was lightning. There was literally a glory cloud around the mountain. It was a glorious event. It was a, an amazing event to see. But it was also terrifying, as we read. And it was not only terrifying, it was incomplete. That even though Moses was great, he was the only one, as Daryl said, he was the mediator that went up on the mountain, even he was not allowed to see the face of God and live. So it was terrifying and it was incomplete. And as we said this morning, because of man's sin, 
man could not see the glory of God and live. That God's glory, his presence, either kills or it brings life. It either causes death. <laughs> we see that everywhere in the Old Testament. That people that come to God in a wrong way are killed. They would actually tie a rope to the high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies in case he came in an unworthy manner. He would die, and they would have to pull him out. So this glory of God, it either kills or it brings life. And that even though this giving of the law is glorious, as we know, it only brings condemnation. That the law of God is good, right? It is good. It is holy. That's what Paul says in Romans. But in and of itself, it can only bring death and condemnation. It has no power in itself to change anyone. It can only tell people what they're doing wrong, right? We believe this. If you have any kids, you've probably seen this. <laughs> when you tell your kids, don't do that. I don't know about you, my two-year-old says, I'm going to do the opposite of that. <laughs> I can tell her all day, don't do that. But it's only going to make her want to do the opposite. If you think about the speed limit on the road, it only tells us what the limit is. It only tells us how fast we can't go. It doesn't give us power to want to obey the speed limit. If anything, it makes us want to go faster and see how, how, how much we can push the line, see how much we can get away with. That This is the nature of the law. That it can only condemn. It can only make us want to do the opposite of that thing. That's basically what Paul says in Romans 7, that when he hears the law... It only makes him want to do the opposite of what the law commands. When he, he didn't even want to covet, but when he heard, do not covet, it made him all the more want to covet. So this is the nature of the law. And we also find out in the book of Romans that everyone that is made in the image of God, every person has the law written on their heart. That they know God's law. That they know that they should love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They should love their neighbor as themselves. But there's a problem that the law is written on a heart of stone. That because of our sin, the law, even though people know God's law, that because it's on stone, they're not sensitive to it. They don't feel the effects when they break it. And that the more they break it, it only calluses their hearts even more to God's ways and God's law. And so even though we know what we're supposed to do, that me and you know that we should love God and love our neighbor from birth, that we don't do it. We fail at this point. We know what we should do. We know what God says, God's law says, but the law itself can't give us any power to fulfill it. And so we need something else. We need something outside of the law to fulfill the law for us. We need something better than the law. We need a final word from God that the law can only bring death and that because of our sin, even though the law is glorious, it can only kill. It can only bring death. But in Christ, the glory of the gospel brings life. The glory of the gospel brings life. One theologian said it like this. The office of the law is to show us the disease in such a way as to show us at the same time 
no hope for cure. But the office of the gospel is to bring a remedy to those who were without hope. For as the law leaves man to himself, it condemns him of necessity to death, why the gospel brings him to life, and it opens the gate to Christ. One poem says it like this. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, but denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. <laughs> that the gospel is not like the law. That the law says do, but we can't. But the gospel, the, sorry, the gospel says do, and it gives us the power to do it. But why? Because Christ has done it. That the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, is that Christ has fulfilled the law. That this final revelation of God in Christ, full of grace and truth, is this great gospel. That God has done what we could not. That God has done, in the person of Christ, what we not. Fulfilling the law and taking the punishment that we deserved. And right there, in our passage this morning, it says that he came full of grace and truth. That the gospel of Christ is full of grace and full of truth. It doesn't diminish either one. That God is a God of truth. God is a God of truth. That Christ came full of truth. That he fulfilled the law perfectly. What's he say later on in John's gospel? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is no less than truth. He doesn't diminish truth. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He's full of truth, but he is also full of grace. That Christ, when he comes, is full of grace. What is grace? Some people define it as unmerited favor. Have you ever heard this definition before? That grace is unmerited favor. That it's like giving your kids something that they didn't deserve, right? We could kind of sometimes talk about that as grace. My kid didn't deserve a lollipop, but I gave them one. And that's a good definition of grace. But if we look at what the scriptures say, grace is actually more than that. It's not that just that we didn't deserve God's favor. It's that we earned the opposite of God's favor. That we actually deserved death. That grace is actually demerited favor. It's not like a humble kid just sitting there and we gave him something that they didn't deserve. It's as if we spit in God's face and yet he gave us grace. Grace upon grace. That this is what grace is. It's not just unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. And we read about this in Romans 5, if you want to turn there with me. In Romans 5, Paul says this about this idea that Christ died for the ungodly. He says that for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we see here that Christ didn't die for us 
because we were great, because we worked our way up to him, because we found a way to be made right by our own works, but that Christ died for us while we were enemies of God. And he saved us by this gospel of Christ. And we see finally in the gospel of John that it's not only that he's full of grace and truth, but he's made the Father known. He says that no one has ever seen God, but that Christ has made him known. That he's explained him. He's exegeted him. He's explained to us the Father. That not that God didn't explain himself in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we have the fullness of God's revelation in the person and work of Christ. That what the law pointed to, Christ has come and accomplished and finished. That what the Old Testament was looking forward to, Christ has fulfilled. He has made him known. So as we take a little bit of time each week to try to apply what we've read this morning, two things to look at this morning. First, that in Christ, in the gospel, we have God's final revelation. We have God's final revelation. That in the gospel, what Christ has done in the word of God, we have God's final word. That this should be a great comfort to us. That we don't have to look for something new. That what God has revealed in his word is everything we need for faith and practice. What we're to believe and how we're to live. That we don't have to go around wondering, what does God want from me? What does he want me to believe? That we have his word. <laughs> That's a great comfort for us. And that, that doesn't mean that we don't need the power of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to reveal to us the truth of God's Word, to lead us in our daily lives. We need the power of the Spirit. But in terms of what we need to look for, we have everything that we need for life and godliness in faith and practice. And so these big questions that we should all be asking, how can I be saved? How can I be made right before God? How can I dwell with Him forever? That question is not left open-ended. God has told us that it's through the gospel, through the work of Christ. And so we have a great comfort and a great hope in that. And secondly, we see that Christ himself, in his incarnation, is the true temple of God. The place where God's presence dwells. And you might say to me, Kendall, what does that mean? <laughs> What's the big deal? Why is that important? What does that have to do with us here in Decatur, 2,000 miles away from where Christ died? What does that have to do with us? Not only is Christ the true temple where God dwells amongst his people, but after Christ ascended into heaven, what did he do? He poured out his spirit. He poured out his spirit. And the Spirit came and rested on the disciples as tongues of fire. This great mighty wind blew, and fire rested on these disciples, but they weren't consumed. That everywhere else in the Old Testament, when fire came, the people fell down because of fear. But in what Christ has done, by indwelling his people with the Spirit, Fire can rest on them, the fire of God, and not consume them. 
that in Christ, in what God has done by sending out His people, or sorry, sending out His Spirit, God now dwells amongst His people by the Spirit. That the veil has been torn, right? That in Christ's crucifixion, the veil was torn, and what was limited to the Holy of Holies is now being spread throughout the whole earth, the ends of the earth, the glory of God filling the earth. That what was once contained has now been released, if we can say it like that. And it's no longer about this physical temple. It's no longer about a physical mountain. It's no longer about this physical land that Christ and his people, the church, are now the dwelling place of God. They're the dwelling place of God. That the church of God is where his presence dwells. And you might say to me, that sounds strange. But if we look at the New Testament, it says something different. Ephesians 2, Paul says this. He's speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says this. For through him, that's Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, listen to this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's fascinating. That Paul is saying that the church of God is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter will say this in 1 Peter. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That Christ is building His church. That he ascended on high, he sent out his spirit to build the temple of God, the church of God. <laughs> That's fascinating to think about. That why did Christ come? Why did he dwell among us? Why are we reading John 1 through 14? Because Christ came to build this temple, to dwell with his people. That by the power of the spirit, he might dwell with his people. That these hearts of stone have been turned into hearts of flesh. That the prophet Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey all my commands. The prophet Jeremiah will go on to say, I will cause you to obey my law. That the Christian life is not one that's contrary to the law of God, but it's fulfilling the law through Christ. That Christ came, fulfilled the law, and by the power of the Spirit, we now have hearts of flesh that long to do God's law. That He's put His Spirit within us, and that we have a great hope that at the end of all things, God will dwell with His people. And we read about that a little bit in our assurance of pardon this morning, but we, some of the last words in the Scripture, we read this. This is John in the book of Revelation saying, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That even though us here in Decatur, Illinois, you know, we are sinners, we're fallen, we're, we're, that's just the way it is. But God in his grace, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son to call us to himself, to indwell us with his spirit so that we might be a holy dwelling place for God. And at the end of all things, even though we deal with sickness and suffering in this life, that at the end of all things, those will pass away and God will dwell with his people. So we have a great comfort there. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for what you've done in Christ, that... We have a great hope this morning that even though we struggle with our sin and we struggle with suffering in this life, we struggle with pain and trials and tribulations, with death and disease, you are not far from us, Lord, but in the person of Christ you took on flesh and dwelt among us, and by the power of your Spirit, even here this morning, when we dwell when we come together and worship you, you promise to be with us. You promise to dwell among us. And even though this is just a picture, it points forward to heaven, where you will dwell with us in perfect communion. That even though our earthly, fleshly bodies at times keep us from that, that one day you will raise us again to new life with new bodies, and we will dwell with you forever that there will be no separation, that this is a great comfort and hope for us. And so this morning as we, as we come to you in worship and as we come to you seeking to believe in Christ, help us this morning to know that this is not just about us, but it's about what the person and work of Christ has done throughout history and will continue to do, building his church into the ends of the age and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord. Give us comfort this morning. Give us hope in the midst of our trials. And may we look to you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. And as we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, this thing that we do every week, we're reminded. We're reminded that this side of heaven, the glory that God gives us is an inward glory. It's a veiled glory. That what we're about to partake of, the bread and the wine, is not that fantastic. <laughs> it's not outwardly, externally glorious. It's not glowing like Moses' face, right? When he came down the mountain, his face was glowing. What we're about to do is not outwardly glorious, but it communicates something inwardly very glorious. I call it miraculously ordinary. <laughs> That what we're doing 
in the Lord's Supper is we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're saying that it's a simple meal, but by faith it becomes glorious. Why? Because by faith we are united to Christ and all his benefits, and we become the people of God. And in eating and drinking by faith, we're remembering what Christ did, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us, but his body was broken, his temple was destroyed, but he raised it up in three days. And he will do that again for us at the end of all things. And that's what we look forward to, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, then this is for you. Where we come and we confess our sins every week, we confess how we've fallen short, but we come knowing that God has made a way, that he's pardoned us because of what Christ has done. And so we can also come rejoicing and looking forward to that heavenly rest that Christ has purchased. So we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So may we do that together this morning. So if you will form a line, we'll get the elements, go back to our seat, and we'll partake together. week we take the bread and we remember that Christ's body was broken so that ours might be spared. And we take and we eat and we remember and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. same way we take the cup and we remember that Christ's body and his blood was spilled. His sin as the perfect lamb of God was shed so that by faith all of our sins, past, present, and future, might be forgiven.
stand with us, we'll close um, by singing the great hymn, It Is Well. Yeah.
not just in song, not just in prayer, but in worship for what God has graciously given us. We give a part of that back to him now. And so let's pray for our tithes and offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for your provisional hand on our lives, for preserving us and protecting us, keeping us, Lord, in all the ways that you do provide for us. We know that nothing good comes apart from you. And um, now is a part of the service where we not only give, but we remember if we've maybe given online or at other times that this is an act of worship, that we give a part of what you've given us back to you and we do it not to earn anything, but because of what you've done for us. May we do it with joy, not begrudgingly, and may we do it for the growth and multiplying of your kingdom. Uh, we pray all these things in your son's name. standing with me as we sing hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here